I'm Dane. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. Brought to you yet again from lockdown. The lockdown that never ends. Yes, that has just been extended by three weeks. It has in the UK, so we're in the UK, obviously, and yeah, another three weeks. Yep. Americans have been let loose and gone to the beach, which is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I don't understand what's happening there. I don't. Who knows? Mm. Yes. Um, we'll see. Yes, yeah, so yeah, and, and the children are back at school next week. But obviously they're not back at school next week, but they'll be at Homeschooled. Home, being homeschooled by me, who's also working at the same time. Yeah. So that'll be fun. That'll be good for you. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Nothing better than being on a conference call and having somebody behind you asking for questions about maths. <laughs> questions about maths that neither of us can answer because it's all changed. It's really recent school. It's like the equivalent of degree level maths now. It really <laughs> when is we were ridiculous. At school. We were trying to go through something with stepdaughters, weren't we? She kept banging on about fish bowls. Yes. I still no idea what she was on about. No, still no clue. But this week's Sublime True Crime is also coming to you sober. Oh my god. <laughs> Because we're recording it during the daytime, rather than at night, when we've had... Multiple gin and tonics. <laughs> I was going to say stressful days inside with the kids. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, no, multiple gin and tonics with JD and Kate. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so we're completely sober. Well, are we sober still after last night? That might still we might be still a, be drunk. Might still be drunk from last yeah. night. I do feel that all we're doing is just topping up alcohol levels at the moment. Yeah, I don't know how everyone else is faring in lockdown, but I appear to have just become someone who drinks every night now, which is just not normal for me at all. Yep. Washed my way through a load of toffee vodka last night. Oh, toffee vodka is yum. What's the company it's from? It's we a company. Give them a shout out. We should do. It's a company called Kin. K I N. Kin Vodka. I want to say that we found them at Chester Food we Market. We found them at Chester Food Market. They're go. based up. Um, is it Newby Bridge? Yes, by the Lake in the sort of Lake District way, so Yorkshire Lake District area. Yeah. Um, and oh my God, look them up. It is. Don't buy any of the stuff in the shops that the main branded stuff because it's not as nice. You want Kin. Kin toffee, toffee vodka. vodka, and it is just like oh. toffee. It's <clears throat> just so don't, easy to drink. Don't need a mixer. Nope. Just drink it neat. Yes. I suppose I should point out that they're not sponsoring the show. This isn't affiliated at all. We just really like the vodka. Keep it up, guys. <laughs> and next week on How to Come Alcoholic... <laughs> <laughs> shall we get on with the case? We should probably get on with the case. <laughs> I'm trying to think of any other drinks we can recommend. I mean, we're very partial to a French martini, but... Yeah, so if you want us to give you our recipe for a French martini, <laughs> then uh, please do ask us. Yes. And we, we will oblige next week. Our French martinis are very sweet. Oh. Moving on. This week, we are doing the death of Patrick Thomas. In the early hours of the 29th of December, 1991, Rosemary Trenchfield was woken by a noise which she later described as a scuffle, followed by a bang like a cap gun. Living in the shabby part of Broccoli in South London, Rosemary could have been forgiven for being used to such noises, but not when they came from the hallway outside her bedroom. She ran out of her bedroom to find her stepbrother, Patrick Thomas, laying on the carpet, bleeding from a wound on his right temple. Patrick had been shot, and by the time Rosemary had called for an ambulance, he was dead. Neighbours on the Turnham Road estate where Rosemary and Patrick lived expressed shock at the murder. Patrick wasn't known to be a troublemaker. He seemed to live a quiet life, sharing a home with Rosemary, her husband and her daughter. Do you know what I like about that is that the way the neighbours expressed shock at the murder. I can't imagine anywhere in the country where realistically someone would get murdered and the neighbours go, oh, yeah. 
to be fair, even in Liverpool, when some gangland boss was <laughs> shot dead in the street for getting his bulletproof vest, they still expressed shock at yeah. that point of, I'm shocked. Yeah, he was such a nice person. Would be yeah, it would just have all that, yeah. <laughs> he was so lovely. He worked both as a barman and a car dealer and was described as just a decent bloke. But the police knew better. Just two weeks before his death, after spending eight months in remand, Patrick was acquitted of possessing £30,000 worth of cocaine. His co-defendant, David Somerville, wasn't as lucky and was sentenced to seven years on the same charge. The police investigating into the murder first centralised on it being a revenge killing. After all, Patrick had escaped a jail sentence by managing to shift the blame onto Somerville. As the investigation continued, though, police realised there was far more to it than that. They discovered that Patrick Thomas had a variety of building society accounts which contained the best part of £150,000 in total. It's not bad going for a barman. I think I might go back into barn work. Yeah. The more they dug, the better the picture they got of Patrick Thomas. For what Patrick wasn't so keen on sharing with the neighbours that had considered him such a nice guy was how he was an expert in armed robbery and drug dealing. Let's rewind almost two years. On the 4th of January 1990, there was a story in the news of how a messenger in the City of London had accidentally dropped £4 million worth of bearer bonds in the gutter whilst on his way to the Bank of England. Whoops, I've just dropped £4 million worth in the gutter and didn't oh, realise. No. Oh, silly me. <laughs> Look, can you imagine if you found those? <laughs> yeah, well, they're would you, know what to, would you know what to do with them, though? I wouldn't know what to do with them. No, I'd panic and give them to the police. I'd hand them in. Like, I don't know what to do with all this. <laughs> I, I can see it's worth a lot of money, but it's a reward. Yeah. <laughs> Bearer bonds and certificates of deposit are essentially the same as cash and are used as an easy way to transfer large sums. In basic terms, whoever has possession of a bearer bond could use it as cash. Yeah, try spending that at Tesco's. They've bought it accepting £50 notes. No. Much less have you got change of a million, Gov. <laughs> Four million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I assume that this must be a very British approach to transporting large amounts of cash around. The details on how it is moved around are basic. Let's be honest, if someone carrying the bonds could drop £4 million worth in the gutter and not realise just how tight was their security or asset management. The news report of these dropped bonds was noticed by four men in particular. Four men who, just a couple of years later, would be named as super offenders among the top 50 criminals in the country. Meeting in a City of London wine bar. Oh, that's very 80s, isn't it? It really is. They surmised that stealing some bonds would be, given the news report, possible, if not necessarily easy. Doing some groundwork, they found out that around £30 billion worth of bonds and certificates were carried around London streets by a bunch of mainly elderly messengers. They decided to chance their arm and snatch a bundle of bonds mid-delivery. However, the gang were aware that they needed to plan their raid correctly. They'd found out that most bonds would be cancelled if not delivered within an hour. And if it was thought that the snatch had been carried out by a professional outfit, they would never be able to move the stolen bonds on. In other words, it needed to look like a random opportune mugging. Disposing of the bonds, as long as they were snatched in the right way, was within their means. The gang had the connections within the criminal underworld to move the bonds on. The plan was to fly the bonds out to Zurich sell them through a broker that they had on their books and then lose the proceeds through a series of transactions in the international banking system. As for finding a mugger, the four supervillains settled on asking an up-and-coming criminal that they knew, Patrick Thomas. 
and Thomas accepted the offer quickly, seeing it as a way to rise up the ranks in the criminal underworld. John Goddard was a 58-year-old messenger who worked for Shepherds, a money-broking firm in the City of London. At 9.38am on 2nd of May 1990, Goddard had been tasked with taking a briefcase of bonds through the city. As he walked through Nicholas Lane, a small alleyway situated off of King William Street which runs between Bank and the Monument, he was approached by a man in his late 20s. Holding a knife against his throat, the man demanded Goddard's briefcase, grabbed it and fled. The Times reported the robbery the next day. Quote, Opportunist snatches 292 million in paper money. The Bank of England said last night they believed the robber was purely an opportunist. Had the robbery been carried out by a gang familiar with the money markets, there could have been substantial losses. End quote. Success for the gang! Or at least that's what you'd assume. 292 million. Oh, My God. I could do so much with that amount of money. I could do so much with 292 pence. That's 292 million. <laughs> Unfortunately for them, their chosen way to launder the money had collapsed before they could dispose of the bonds. Dan's fun fact, you know why it's referred to as money laundering? Because when the Italian mafia wanted to find a way to make stolen money look legitimate, they would purchase laundrettes and then mix their illegal profits from other ventures legitimately into what they were getting from the laundrettes. Ah, so they didn't buy the laundrettes to wash the money? No, which is what I used to think <laughs> when I was younger and first heard it. Undeterred, they sent a message through the criminal underworld asking for potential launderers to get in touch. Step forward, the New York Mafia. Already involved in a scam where they had $7 million of bonds that they were trying to launder, it made sense for them to take the additional bonds too. I suppose 292 million. What's, yeah, $7 million. What's another 292 on top of that? Right, stick with us here because we're going to suddenly introduce a group of new names. The Mafia's contact in Britain was Keith Cheeseman from Luton. He'd obtained some of the stolen bonds from Raymond Kettridge, a London businessman, and sent them on to Mark Osborne, an American go-between from Texas. Osborne was then introduced to Tony DePino, another member of the Mafia. And just how Mafia is that surname? DePino. DePino. Who expressed an interest in buying some of the bonds in order to launder the proceeds of a massive drugs deal he had brokered. On the 31st of July, Osborne and DePino met up in Mulligan's Bar on 42nd Street. Osborne handed over 10 bond certificates worth £10 million. Once the sale had been agreed, DePino, or David Manicus, to use his real name, revealed that he was in fact an undercover agent for the FBI. Ooh, how's your luck? As it had turned out, City of London Police had quickly realised that the crime was linked to international fraud and money laundering operations. They had a 40-man team working alongside the FBI after the Bank of England revealed that the gang could be able to turn the bonds into cash. Dupino, or Manicus, quickly arrested Osborne, who in turn very quickly turned tail and agreed to be an informant for the FBI. Osborne allowed the FBI to record his phone calls to Britain, where he pretended that the sale had gone ahead without any issues. In the following couple of weeks, they recorded lots of conversations. They heard Cheeseman telling Osborne to put the money somewhere safe and warning that the remaining bills were, quote, red blanket hot, end quote. That's not a phrase I've really heard before. Red blanket. Oh, yeah, that really hot thing. Though, really hot red blanket. <laughs> That's come from somebody who left it on overnight by accident once. Oh, there we go. Woke up sweating. <laughs> I've never done that. <clears throat> they also listened in as Ketteridge complained how he hadn't been paid for the first lot of bills. However, on the 16th of August, two and a bit weeks after meeting DePino, Osborne disappeared. 
It's okay though, he was found five days later in Houston, Texas, albeit dead with two bullet wounds to the back of his head. Someone must have known he talked. But was he the only one leaking information? During the summer of 1990, the City of London Police had a series of really lucky breaks. They found £77 million of the bonds during a routine check at Heathrow. £80 more million pounds were found in Cyprus, as well as smaller amounts in West Germany, Singapore, Scotland and the Netherlands. It's an awful lot of places to stumble across How, bonds. How do you just find them? Hmm. Oh, look. They well, left them on the park bench or something. <laughs> just lose them in a ditch, I suppose. And I suppose you could just find them, can't you? This is true. On the 7th of September, Anthony Gallagher, and I say the name like that because the likelihood is that was a false name, dropped a package off to Aero Peru's cargo office in Miami, asking that it be delivered to an address in Peru. Suspecting that the package may contain money for laundering, the parcel was opened to reveal £71 million of the missing bonds. Subsequent investigations revealed that the IRA were involved in the laundering and were trying to exchange the bonds for drugs and cash with Peru-based Colombian drugs parents. The crime syndicate in London was far from happy. Not only had they now lost the vast majority of the bonds, they had also spent over £200,000 setting up the sting. This outcome would also have impacted the respect they would have got from other criminal elites. They vowed to find the informer and dole out their own form of justice. Fast forward to March 1991. Patrick Thomas was in his Greenwich flat with David Somerville cutting up a kilo of cocaine when armed police burst inside. As we know from the start of the story, Thomas managed to get off of the charges, but while he was on remand, he had a scare. A headline in the Today newspaper on the 26th of October 1991 caught his eye. Quote, £290 million clue to headless corpse, end quote. The article revealed that a mutilated body had been found in Woodland, near Bolney, Sussex. The corpse had had their head cut off and their hands removed in an effort to make identification as difficult as possible. But that would work, to be fair. Yeah, but based on all the other stuff we've listened to about true crime, it seems to be the way forward. Yes. Gonna, quick tip for listeners, if you can dispose <laughs> of a body, cut off all the extremities. Yes. Yeah. The police had identified the body as that of Keith Cheeseman, remember him? Stating that his death fitted in with the fact that he was on the run from the FBI and mentioning that his partner had been murdered the previous year. News of Cheeseman's death would have shocked his ex-wife Kerry, not least because the day after the corpse was found, she was having dinner with Cheeseman at a Kent restaurant. <laughs> the police had misidentified the body. Not that Thomas was aware of this, with thoughts of how an accomplice had been murdered and chopped up, and the knowledge that Osborne was also dead, his personality changed. It's said that aside from becoming withdrawn, he was also sullen and prone to extreme mood swings. Thomas convinced himself that he would be killed next. After his acquittal, when he had moved back in with Rosemary, things did not improve. A couple of days before Christmas, Thomas tried to withdraw some money from one of his false building society accounts. The cashier became suspicious and asked for more proof of identity. Panicking, Thomas ran off. That's not at all suspicious behaviour, is it? No, it's not at all. You've got no ID, love. <laughs> A few days later, just after Christmas, Thomas got even more depressed when his girlfriend and daughter came to visit but refused to stay with him overnight. A neighbour recalls seeing Thomas on the morning of the 28th of December in the stairwell of the flats. Quote, I said hello, but he just waved at me and said nothing. He didn't seem himself at all. End quote. 
Yeah, let's not forget that although he was a villain, Thomas had previously been described as friendly and outgoing by his neighbours, so yes. it's completely out of character. Later that afternoon, Thomas met up with friends in what press reports describe as the Sands Public House in Blackheath. Now, having grown up nearby, I can only assume this is the Sud in the Sands pub, and that will be well known to anyone who's unfortunate enough to have to use the A2 nearby, as there is always traffic in and around the Sun in the Sands roundabout leading towards the Blackwall Tunnel. And I couldn't find a Sands public house in Blackheath. Right. So. This was the start of a pub crawl which ended up at the Grey Coat Boy in Greenwich at 11.30pm. Thomas had been drinking shots of Jack Daniels all day and following each one with a line of cocaine. <laughs> That'll fix his mood swings. I know. So is that what they mean by JD and Co? <laughs> All Maybe. this time I thought... <laughs> All this time I've been pouring fizzy drinks into me JD. Oh, oh man. Oh. At midnight, he visited some West End nightclubs with friends, where he continued his drug-taking with a couple of ecstasy tablets on top of the JD and Coke. Great. That's a really good way to uh, stabilise your mood, isn't it, if you're nice feeling depressed and down. Moving on from the West End, Thomas then moved back south of the River Thames and tried to get into the Ministry of Sound nightclub. As the bouncer tried to frisk him, Thomas freaked out. As though he'd been asked for some extra ID. Yes. Buildings of sweat. <laughs> Ran away screaming. <laughs> a friend later said, quote, It seemed he had something hidden in the small of his back and didn't want it to be found. End quote. After this, Thomas returned home alone, getting in just before 5am. Just minutes later, he was dead. Detective Inspector Dave Bowen led an eight-month investigation into the death of Thomas. His verdict was, quote, It is my opinion and that of my fellow officers that Patrick Thomas committed suicide. End quote. I must admit, that really surprised me because when I first started going through this case, I genuinely thought he'd be murdered. Yes. It does look that way from the evidence at the beginning. Yeah. However, during the inquest, witnesses revealed that Rosemary, Thomas's stepsister, had told them that she had seen and hidden a gun that was at his side as he lay in the hallway. Oh, Rosemary... I just don't get that. <sighs> Thomas was still alive at this point and Rosemary was aware that he had just got off remand and didn't want him being locked up for a firearms offence. So better for him to uh, lead to death. Yeah, it's all a bit <sighs> fucked up. It is a bit. Cassius Walker, a close friend of Thomas, stormed to the centre of the courtroom at this revelation. He demanded to know why Rosemary had told so many people about the gun but had never mentioned it to the police. He ranted, quote... I'm not saying she killed him, but why is she lying? End quote. Oh, I don't know, Cassius. It does kind of sound like you're saying she did kill him. And to be fair, that wasn't an outcome I considered before that. That's true. Mm. She got fed up of sharing a house with her mooching stepbrother. Yeah. And him not sharing his £150,000 with her. Yes. <laughs> Despite witnesses only hearing one gunshot on the night, a second bullet was found lodged in the front door of the flat. A bullet that ballistic experts confirmed had come from the same gun that had killed Thomas. It was implied that Thomas had held the gun for some time, test firing it some time before the night he died, and that he had the gun on him that evening, hence freaking out when being frisked by the bouncer. In a fit of depression, he'd returned home and committed suicide. Within a year of the robbery, police had recouped all but two of the stolen bonds. Despite arresting 25 men in total, Keith Cheeseman was the only man that was successfully convicted after admitting conspiracy to sell more than £372 million in stolen securities, including the proceeds of the bond robbery. 
Now, I don't understand that because he admitted a conspiracy to sell more than 372 million's worth, but they only stole 292 million's worth. No, but there was more because of the American money as well. Does that tally up as well? No, no, because the Americans only had 7 million. Yeah, just the figures don't know. Oh, I don't add up. That's no. Odd. I did not know that. Hmm, interesting. Cheeseman was sentenced to six and a half years in jail for his part of the robbery. I find it quite amazing as well, though, that he was pronounced dead and then ended up in jail. <laughs> As you like. <laughs> Four other people had been charged in the UK with handling the stolen bonds, but they were all acquitted after what The Guardian describes as, quote, the highly unusual step taken at the opening of their 1991 trials to offer no evidence, end quote. Yeah, this normally translates to the fact that giving evidence would mean they have to reveal the source of the informer, a move which would endanger the life or the lives of those people. Right. So I guess that's the reason for that. Mm. And that is the case of Patrick Thomas. What are your thoughts? Do you think Thomas committed suicide? Or was he murdered? Was he murdered by his sister? Really, I'm not sure. It's all very odd. Yeah. I think suicide is probably the most likely, given the fact that there was another bullet found as well that they shot. But when did he do that? Yeah, and how did no one notice? And how does that go through your head of, uh, I might kill myself at some point, so I'm going to do a test shot of my gun into my front door... And then yeah. hide the gun around my person, presumably. Yeah. Wandering around the streets with it, going clubbing on tons of drugs with a gun. Yeah. And then come home and think, oh, now, now's the time. Now I'll do it. Couldn't get into the ministry, so I'm going to kill myself. Pretty much. I know. How bizarre. <laughs> so what do you think? Uh, I think, I do think you committed suicide, but then when you're involved in a £292 million robbery, you're playing with the big boys. Yeah. You know? I mean, there was already one person that had been murdered which is obviously a Mafia-style hit. Mm. So, who knows? I think I think if it had been a professional killing, it would have been done a bit more uh, more than one shot, maybe. Yeah, but it's more smoothly. Yeah. Um, and for my question is, if your sibling was shot and was laying stricken on the floor, would you move the gun? No, again, I can understand the reasoning behind it, that she didn't want him to go back to jail, but equally, I'd be going, shit, I'd best get an ambulance. Yeah. And I think I would first phone an ambulance and then move the gun. Mm. But then again, I don't think I'd move the gun. It's... No, I think it would occur to me to move the gun, to no. hide it. No. You'd no. want it there as evidence, wouldn't you? Yeah, very odd. So let us know. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime... Ah, fuck it. Elaine at sublimetruecrime.com And this is why I don't ever say the name of the podcast. What's, what's the name of the podcast? I can't possibly tell you. <laughs> because I can't say it. (laughs) Or you can reach out to us via the Facebook page. Just search for Sublime True Crime. And if you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one if you can do, that'd be great. As it helps us to reach more people. And if you can think of any more cases that you'd like us to cover, please do let us know. Next week's episode is the last in the current series. So until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.